Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast that believes that Megan Rapinoe can change the world. She's changed my world. <laughs> I'm your host for today's show, Stefan Rolnick. A little later on, we'll be hearing from Henna Shah, who caught up with Famida Rahman from the Resolution Foundation about their latest report on intergenerational fairness, which you can find in the show notes. Henna is currently sitting with her feet up in Portugal. So Henna, if you're listening to this, stop following politics, get some well-deserved rest. Fair, seconded. Um, have, have, have another vino, Henna, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she did call us earlier, but I think she sounded quite sober. So <laughs> fingers crossed for Henna. Anyway, with Henna away, I'm joined by Progress Chair, Alison McGovern. Hello. You've already heard, and my colleague, Stephanie Lloyd, to run through the latest headlines. How are we doing? Good, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. So let's start with, over the weekend, we had Pride. Steph, what was... LGBT Labour up to for Pride? So I was, so it was London Pride this weekend, so it's the biggest Pride in the country. I, for the first time in years, didn't go, which made me very sad. But my wonderful housemate was moving out and I was like, for once I need to actually be a good friend and lift some very heavy boxes. So I did that. But it was an amazing Pride. I kind of followed it online with a bit of sadness that I wasn't there. But yeah, the team from LGBT Labour were absolutely amazing. Um, they were carrying massive signs um, for LGBT inclusive education for all um, and also trans rights and human rights. And we were joined by some brilliant activists from kind of all across the spectrum in the country um, and loads of MPs as well popped along to say hi, which was good fun. But half the PLP was there. Yeah, half the PLP were there by the looks of it. So um, who knows? No, I was about to make an awful joke then, but I'll stop. Um, so... Yeah, no, it looked, it's always, it's always an amazing day. It wasn't quite as hot as last year, which I think was probably for the best because that was horrific. Mm. Um, can I just, ask, can I just say one thing that I've noticed? Yeah. I mean, I feel a bit long in the tooth in politics these days at the grand old age of 38, but there seems to be more and more glitter oh, at yeah. Pride. Oh yeah. Like it's a thing now, right? So yeah, so I start, when I, the first Pride I did, the first Pride I normally do of the season is Birmingham which is um, around Easter time. And from that moment onwards, I accept that I will have glitter on me one way or another until about October. But like so, literally, I mean, Tonya and Tonyatsi, it's like all the glitter. So I'm normally the glitter person as well. So you're, I normally you buy... Glitter, I normally glitter monitor. I normally buy all the glitter and right. then like someone will see me doing it with like one or two of my friends and then I end up with a queue of about 30 people on a Pride. Wow doing it so someone clearly stepped up and took my role this year which is good that's um, that's, and that's good really for my good. bank balance also but uh but no it's a really it is a really important weekend so you see lots you know we see lots of the glitter and the dancing and the kind of party of it all but it's one of those times where like it's it's never been legally better to be an lgbt person in this country but it's also never felt 
there's a real sense of kind of nervousness around the community at points as well. So, you know, particularly with some of the kind of raising, rising hate crimes that we've been seeing, the kind of attacks that we've been seeing on people, whether that was the women on the bus in Camden all the way to the kind of, you know, people that were stabbed in Liverpool. Like it, it is a really, it's a scary time as well. So it was a, it's a really big moment, I think, this summer to see the kind of prides the way they have been and really showing that. It is a party, but also even just the kind of sense of it being a party is also very much a political act and, and just it is because, still a protest. And because people can take up that amount of space yeah. in the centre of our capital city and cities around the country as mm. we go through Pride season, it doesn't mean that all spaces in our mm. country are safe. And yeah. like, it, it's still like uh, a day in which, you know, people experience the country being a different kind of place for that day, which means that for the rest of the year, there are still challenges and troubles. Speaking of people taking up space, one person who very famously took up some space in her goal celebration was uh, Megan Rapinoe, who we mentioned in the introduction. For those of you who don't know, I mean, where have you been? But <laughs> Megan Rapinoe is one of the USA's star players, has been a standout player in the World Cup for now, the, the second tournament running, would you say? Yeah, she kind of broke onto the scene three World Cups ago, um, and this is her second big one. I mean, to begin with, the Women's World Cup has been record-breaking this time on a range of different measures a billion people yeah like so audience figures advertising spend and all the rest of it has been really really good but i think that what we're also seeing is is stars megan rapinoe being the main one but but you know in our own case lucy Mm. bronze and others stars really coming into their stride now Mm. i think that there's a generation of women footballers of which she is going to be the most famous global example who have who have grown up in the sport in a way that was impossible for women just a generation ago. Um, up in the Wirral, I was playing with Wirral Valkyries on Thursday night, and we How'd had. How'd it go? Uh, it was re- <laughs> it was great. Unfortunately, uh, fans of the Valkyries will be sad to hear that they lost the cup that they were playing in on penalties on Sunday. Uh, I wasn't playing, brutal. but yeah. Have but you ever been in a penalty? Big shoot shout out to. Ever... I haven't actually. I, and yeah, I wouldn't be very good, but a <laughs> uh, big shout out to the Valkyries for that. But we had some um, older women join us who'd played, um, you know, in women's teams like 15, 20 years ago when things were really different. Now the generation of women that we're seeing coming through in this Women's World Cup have played their whole careers in, in an environment where we were making progress. Mm. And, you know, it starts here. The The end of this tournament is very much the beginning for yeah. women's football. Well, I, I just wanted you guys to expand on that a little bit because Rapinoe expressed a frustration before the final um, about the fact that the date of the final clashed with the men's Copper America final and also the disparity in payout for women. Which, which is crucial oh, because like, obviously like Brazil and um, the other South American teams that are, you know, massive in football play in that. In mm-hmm. that. Um, I think it's, it's fair to say that also... Um, you know, some of the South American countries have not been the best in terms of mm. women's football. So it's lo- it's not just the date clashes. It's yeah. also about the way that FIFA are managing some of the politics of yeah. this. And, and it was also like, I mean, watching, if anyone kind of watched the final, as it finished, the kind of chanting around the stadium wasn't the kind of USA that you would think it would be. It was actually for equal pay, which I thought, you know, just watching it really, for me, summed up this world, the World Cup and also women's football with the level of, kind of really powerful politics that goes into it as well and the idea of these women joining together and I think like for people that that don't know about it particularly with America's case they're currently going through um 
legal action in terms of the discrimination they get in terms of the payment between the men and the women's team. So some of the women on the American team are paid only 38% of what the men get on their team. Now, if you look at it quite often, when you hear the kind of conversations around equal pay in sport between men and women, the arguments are often like, but they don't bring as much sponsorship, not as many people watch them, they're not as successful. But in the case of America, when it comes to the soccer teams, as they like to call it, the men didn't even qualify for the last World Cup. The women, this is now the fourth time that the women have won it. They bring in Two more the revenue. Yeah, they bring in more revenue, more profits, higher viewing figures, and they still get paid less. So mm. that is, there is no even commer- pathetic commercial argument that you can try also, and make for some of this I stuff. I mean, also this drives me wild. So like on the commercial argument, in the UK, I mean, this drives me absolutely wild. Mm. Like I feel like every conversation I have about this, I have to remind people that the FA banned women playing football in the United Kingdom, well, in England anyway, um, for 50 years. Mm -hmm. So the idea that, you know, we should like, once the ban was lifted, that women, the women's game would just be, you know, as if that had never happened. Mm. And therefore it should be a simple case of like market supply and demand, like on, and that, that the FA shouldn't take any like positive steps. Now to be fair to the FA, and the wonderful Baroness Sue Campbell, who runs, runs women, women's football at the FA, they've taken lots of steps of mm. positive action. They really have. But but we have so much further to go and we have got to be demanding because like generations of women have lived under the shadow of being unable to play our national game. Mm. It, and it's, I was just going to say the only other thing on that as well is it's also the point of if, if you don't have the ability to watch it, right? They never used to put the Women's World Cup on BBC in the way that they've done this year. They've never used to publicise it in the same way. And actually, to be fair to BBC and BBC Sport, what they've done this year has shown that if you give people the opportunity to watch it, if you tell them what it's about and you give them things that are in people are going to watch it, which is why every time we were going through those games, we were breaking viewing figures constantly. And the big question is for the Women's Super League now... Mm. How, who is going to step up and start broadcasting some of these games because because the quality is really good and frankly like as Steph says you know if you give people the opportunities to watch uh by and large they do so I'm already booking my tickets for the first opening games so exactly so you know it's a really interesting case women's football of how structural factors can be almost invisible to the to the eye but once they're removed once they're changed you know like you just have this massive societal change almost immediately like who would 10 years ago if you'd have told me 11 million people will watch the england women in a world cup semi-final i'd have been just absolutely knocked out and, and yeah, it happened. Can I just say one last thing before we move on from football, which sadly, you know, the fact that me and Alison can't just shoehorn in women's football every week now is going to be deeply upsetting for, for us. Probably, we'll probably, probably yeah, happy we for the listener. But the other thing, can I just say that I think has been so amazing over the last, over this tournament is, and I say this as we've just talked about pride as well, is the idea, is, is the structural difference in terms of institutional the lack of institutional homophobia that really exists within women's football. Like there is not a single out um, male footballer in the Premier League. There's not a single out footballer in the England team. Um, But yet we see there was over 20 odd out players that were playing across the World Cup. Mm. And it is one of those things where actually like the culture of all of this is so different and it's so much more positive and it's so much more inclusive. And obviously there are things that can always change when it gets to elite sport that gets more difficult. But for me, sitting there watching 
you know, these women, for them to be out and happy and be who they are, I think is, is, is a huge change in terms of how we see sport and the unbelievable kind of positive influence that can have for LGBT people and inclusion in society in our national game. I think that's right. And, you know, the men's game has a lot to learn. I mean, on both in both the women's game and the men's game, um, I think that race will continue to be a factor. And I think, again, the FA has had some quite hard lessons to learn. But yeah, I think it's that point about if you if you've got these issues in society, sometimes it's easy just to accept them rather than seeing it as structural change, making big changes and then reaping the rewards. Well, speaking of people who aren't interested in making any big structural changes, um, I know we're all getting tired of the Tory leadership race. Is it not over yet? It is not over yet, but we are going to try and make it more fun. I can't believe we've still got like, we've still got two weeks of this. I'm so deeply bored of it already. Well, I wanted to... Horrified. Yes. Well, I have to be bored because if I'm not bored, I cry myself to sleep. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, well, Stefan, well, were we inter- this, interrupting you there? <laughs> well, this is an attempt to spruce it up, but I don't think it will help make it any less horrifying. We're going to dive into some of the substance behind the headlines because, like we've said week after week, we do all get caught up in the horse race of it. And I know that Alison hates games. What? But she hasn't seen my notes. <laughs> so it's happening now. You, we are Good. not having a quiz. So Go on, we're Stephen, going to up. learn about who is funding the Tory leadership candidates and why in a game that we're calling The Price Is, a deeply divided country in a gridlock parliament and a conservative party lurching to the right. right. That was good, wasn't it? Yeah, that was great. <laughs> right, so I'm going to read out a donor and you guys are going to have to try and guess. So I'm going to read out a donor, the description of what they've done, and you are going to have to try and guess who they donated to. Okay. You ready? So basically you're going to tell us... So some... just between Boris and, and Jeremy Hunt, right? Uh, yes. Or, yeah, or yeah, any you know, of yeah. Just the final two leaders. I was, was going to say, there was a lot of them at one point. Yeah. Okay. So the this firm that donated is co-owned by Terence Morden, a strong Brexiteer who is a board member of a climate change denial group, the Global Warming Policy Forum, the organisation which was led for years by the former Tory Chancellor Nigel Lawson and refuses to say who funds it. They sound dreamy. Yeah. Who Uh, did they donate to? I reckon mm, both of them. Absolutely right. Oh my goodness. Oh, hope you haven't been checking my notes. I have I have highlighted it out on the notes there, so I hope there hasn't been any cheating. Um number two, Robin Burley, a businessman and property developer, the longtime Brexit supporter, previously donated to UKIP under Nigel Farage, and recently attended event by the controversial youth group Turning Point UK, which was addressed by Farage. Uh Boris Boris, Boris Johnson. Yes, Robin donated twenty thousand pounds to Boris Johnson. Okay. Number three, Graham Robeson. I'm depressed as, already. As I know, it gets worse. As chief executive of Roland Capital, Robeson is the director of companies ultimately based in tax havens such as the British Virgin Islands. Among these is a company um, that prompted concern in Norfolk by buying up large amounts of land, leaving locals unable to find out ultimately who owned it. Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy Hunt. That is also Boris Johnson. Ten thousand no pounds for wow. Boris. Also, it's really hard to find out who owns land. I listened to a very interesting yes. podcast on that the other week. Go listen to that mm. on the Guardian, listener. Mm. Um, after you've listened to this, obviously. Mm. Uh, number four and the final one: Johan Christofferson, the hedge fund manager, is a keen supporter of fox hunting. Jeremy Hunt. He oh, is a joint Jeremy master Hunt. of Jeremy Hunt of the Jed Forest Hunt in the Scottish Borders. Other members of which have been convicted of breaking fox hunting laws. Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy hates the foxes. Hunt. So actually, he donated thirty six thousand pounds of Boris Johnson. No. So Jeremy Hunt's going to be annoyed about that. Um, Thanks to The Guardian for that reporting. We'll put a link to that story up in the show notes. But, you know, we'd also like to know in the interest of balance that Jeremy Hunt is getting donations from someone who owns a private healthcare company. So that makes me feel 
really good about yeah, but his that's time just, as health secretary. Exactly. That's just like bog standard sort of like <laughs> well, touriness these days, right? Before we do move on, and we hope that's been illuminating to the listener. Uh, I mean, what does that donor list tell you about um, these two candidates? I mean, to be honest with you, whenever you um, look at kind of money in in British politics on the right, it's it's never a, a happy occasion. Mm. I mean, thankfully, we are not in the dire state of affairs that they find themselves in the US. Mm. At least our kind of um, financial uh, regulatory um, laws protect us to a certain degree in the UK, but it's always pretty depressing. And I think sometimes we're guilty of, like, <laughs> we're guilty of thinking that the Conservative Party is kind of just like the, it's just like the Labour Party, but the right. Yeah. And what this leadership election has re- reminded us is that firstly it's a shell of a party there's an absolutely tiny proportion of people who will choose our next prime minister but also i mean the people who they're funded by mm. is it's it's not a, it's not a great <laughs> list it doesn't make you feel proud to be british at this point well I'm, I'm reminded of you know what happened in the us in 2016 where you look at what donald trump was promising and he was getting all this money from big money donors and at the same time he was actually promising to expand healthcare for ordinary people and you know we're seeing now that the Conservative candidates are offering these big spending pledges. But when it comes to crunch point, I mean, who's giving them more? I mean, you've got these donors giving them all this money. Like, yeah. we, we know where their allegiances lie. I, I also um, read a little bit of interesting analysis um, over the weekend about Boris Johnson's um, tax pledges, the um, Association of Accounting Technicians. Um, that you might, <laughs> My favourite. No, you might think that that sounds really dry, but they've mm. done a really, really good analysis mm. of... Uh, the uh, Johnson and Hunt um, tax proposals. And actually the main beneficiaries of the Johnson tax cuts will be men in London and the Southeast Mm -hmm. because of who earns what. And actually sometimes we do have to follow the money money in these situations and say, okay, actually if you give back uh, money that the government, you know, would otherwise have had available to spend on the health service Mm -hmm. or education or whatever, we're giving it back to people who are already wealthy and mainly men. Yeah, it's the hard right playbook, isn't it? You know, yeah. take money out of the government through tax cuts and then, you know, blame it on other people so you don't get caught. Um, and on that completely depressing note, we're going to go to a quick ad break and we're going to come back and talk about the Labour Party and Brexit. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back, listeners. So, like we said, we're going to talk about Labour and Brexit. And possibly the most terrifying thing about all of this is that at a time when we need a strong progressive opposition the most, Labour itself is embroiled in yet more scandal. Uh, we saw the poor performance in the polls last week. And unfortunately, that doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. Um, Steph, over the weekend, there was a scandal about NDAs not, or non-disclosure agreements. Could you tell us just a little bit more about what happened? Yeah, of course. So yesterday there was kind of a story started to emerge about former members of Labour Party staff, quite senior members of Labour Party staff, um, who were receiving legal letters from uh, the party's lawyers, of which they've been instructed to, because they thought that they had been breaking their non-disclosure agreements. So they were kind of slightly strange beast NDAs, but the the point of what they're trying to say is basically like you sign confidentiality agreements, you sign these agreements when you left that you wouldn't talk about anything really that had happened um, during your time of working here. And now it looks like you're going to the press and you're telling them about anti-Semitism and some of the ways of which the party have mishandled things. Now, the reason why this kind of blew up so much is uh, Labour's position on NDAs is that it should they should be scrapped, um, particularly when it comes to whistleblowers. And I think what we saw over the last couple of months, particularly around Julian Assange, was when it really flared up last time. Um, the number of people around the leadership or in the you know very senior in the shadow cabinet um, coming out and saying like we need protection for whistleblowers. This is what needs to happen. But it seems that when it comes to people whistleblowing on institutional anti-Semitism within the Labour Party, they are not such a fan. So uh, I think the level of hypocrisy and double standard was being called out by large amounts of my Twitter bubble. Um, but I'm aware. Of I do live in a very specific Labour Twitter bubble. Um, but it was, it, you know, it was it was yet another thing where it's, you know, is this really what you're spending your time and your money on? Particularly, you know, lots of kind of conjecture coming out of that about the fact that there's going to be a, an episode of Panorama on Wednesday that digs quite deeply into um, institutional well, anti-Semitism within the Labour Party um, and how how badly the Labour Party might have dealt with that. So there are lots of people that are saying they're kind of coming out now to try and, and try and use legal matters to squash former members of staff talking about their experiences, which doesn't really line up with Labour values, to say the least. No, no, indeed. And I think the thing that frustrates me the most, and this aside from the anti-Semitism and the immorality and, you know, the lack of leadership on those issues, is that it is the democratic duty of the Labour Party to be the best that it can be right now with everything that's going on. And when you have that kind of important historical weight on you, I don't think you can blame the media or blame the other side because history is going to look back at this moment in politics and ask where the progressive opposition was. And if we're not good, at, good enough to answer that question, then we've only got ourselves to blame. I mm. mean, Alison, is it frustrating to you to have all these issues you want to talk about and are getting bogged down in stuff like this? Um, massively. And also, we have to just deal with the substance of, of this issue. And um, so my colleague, um, Justin Madders, who's actually my next door neighbour MP in Ellesmere Port, folks, Justin um, has written a piece for Labour List this week um, on why he's pushing for an independent complaints mm -hmm. process. Um, and perhaps we might stick it. Um, in the show notes um, because I mean Justin himself you know his uh, his professional background is that he was a um, he was a solicitor who used to um, do uh, 
labor market stuff um for trade unions so he knows his onions when he comes when it comes to um this sort of thing you know processes to deal with this and so it's not like we don't in the labor party literally have a bank of people mm. who are kind of the experts at like grievance and employment matters and and that we just at the moment seem to be choosing not to use that expertise um so i would really commend people to read uh, justin's piece and like the fact is we have a simple job here which is to grip the substance of the issue it's absolutely intolerable that there should be an anti-semitism problem in our party the um equality and human rights commission are investigating but even whilst that happens like we should be fully cooperating with that investigation and taking steps right now that people affected would say would help deal with it um because then you know we can do that and deal with the substance of the issue and also get on with you know what people in the country expect of us which is to be taking on the tories and it's to be demonstrating that our country doesn't have to be run this way well just before we end the show let's talk about the way our country is being run and we haven't spoken about rory stewart for some time so I guess we're going to have to dip back in because it was only Why? a matter of time before he came back. Well, well, Rory Stewart has suggested that if Johnson were to attempt to prorogue Parliament in order to force through no deal, he would set up an alternative Parliament. Um, the best detail of this is that he would bring back the uh, MVP Speaker, Betty Bosroyd, to oversee it. So I also propose that we bring back Blur and Happy Slaps while we're in that kind of era of... Uh, okay, MVP? Most Valuable Player. Uh, very so American. It's an American football term, but I, I'm proposing that it's relevant to. Uh, right. I, I'd like to move the motion that is relevant in this case. Right. Sure. Steph's looking at me like it's I'm, not. I'm just eye rolling at any point where we have to continue to talk about Rory Stewart and okay. having to prorogue Parliament. But if um, only if only the podcast listeners could uh, could see the level of eye roll of which I do. <laughs> Unfortunately, our country I think is just one big eye roll at this point, so we're going to have to talk about it. Um, I mean, okay, let's talk about the substance of it rather than Rory Stewart because Rory Mania has moved on. Um, do you think this kind of planning, Alison, shows that Parliament is a little bit concerned about whether it can stop No Deal? Uh, no, I think it's just that we're making clear that we will. Mm. Um, I think that it's always been the case that we're going to kind of marshal a list of options. Um, it's just absolutely a mess that the Conservative Party is choosing between two candidates, who both of whom uh, think No Deal is... I mean, in Boris Johnson's case, you get the impression that he thinks it's like like a really, really good prospect. Yeah. Um, and what they always say is like, no deal doesn't really mean no deal because we'll have a series of like ad hoc agreements. What that actually means is we'll scrabble around to try and keep, you know, transport going across borders and to try and prevent the worst consequences of no deal. And we will be like really in the hands of our European colleagues in trying to help us out in that situation after we have just burnt all <laughs> diplomatic relations with them for yeah. the past three years that's what they really mean by that and so the idea that we've got boris johnson on the one hand who seems really enthusiastic about it and jeremy hunt on the other hand <laughs> who i think probably knows it's a horrific idea but can't quite bring himself to face down the tory members and say i am not prepared to do this well, my favorite bit about him is he's kind of already he's like yeah, it's not a good idea. But whatever you want, guys, in for the party. Because like, I no. really want to be Prime Minister. Yeah. So I'm and just going to be a bit more sad about it. Right. <laughs> and also, the fact is, this conversation that's going on with the Tory party at the moment is delusional. Mm. Because it's delusional for two reasons. Firstly, because our friends in Europe can hear us. <laughs> they can read newspapers. <laughs> 
and they know what's going on. It's all over Twitter, yeah. right? So, so the uh, there's which I hear is publicly available. It is publicly yeah. available. <laughs> the idea that all doing these secret chats of like, yeah. guys, guys, got an idea. We're gonna do. It's like no. They no. think our politics is like a secret WhatsApp group. Yeah, so, so like we'll and don't not worry, even secret we'll WhatsApp tell group's them, a secret. We'll tell them that we're prepared to do no deal, and that'll make them <laughs> give us a good deal. That's a great negotiating tactic. Oh. They're saying in the public, as if somehow, uh, as if somehow colleagues Brussels in, are like, oh, fooled us. Yeah, okay, exactly. Damn it, didn't read the papers yeah, that day. It's like sitting at a poker table and being like, not a great hand, but I'm going to bet as if I've got one. Yeah, so literally <laughs> out loud, out loud. So, um, so that's a problem, but problem number two is as if, um, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt can't also count to 650, you know, as if they could somehow, <laughs> I'm not going to lie, I would put it slightly past Boris, but, yeah. Yeah. but as if somehow they You'd get can... bored at three. Right. Could he get to 650 without saying something offensive? No, no. <laughs> He'd get as bored. If... He'd literally walk off before we got to 10. But you know, <laughs> as if, as if there's a way of getting what you want through the house of commons um when theresa may couldn't um and you know what you're actually doing is releasing a larger group of potential tory rebel mps many of whom you know caroline spellman spent all of that time Mm -hmm. encouraging that group of people to vote no to no deal and as if somehow you're going to face a really different set of members of parliament just because you're boris johnson um or jeremy hunt rather than theresa may the final thing is, um, uh, I've been reading um, the um, uh, brilliant book by uh, Fintan O'Toole about Brexit. Mm. Um, and I read in there today this like account of Boris Johnson writing these articles when he was Brussels correspondent for the, for the Daily Telegraph about all the terrible things that the EU had done to this country. And it's really interesting because you realise how divorced from reality it was then so actually we shouldn't be surprised at these ways in which he's divorced from reality and one of the things that boris johnson wrote about uh in in the early 2000s when he was doing that job was about the attempt by the european union to ban prawn cocktail crisps they are awful I think they're great. Right, okay, no. it is too late in the show to get into the prawn cocktail. But my point debate. is, my point they is, taste great. It lingers for too long. We should all okay, learn. From final the, word from Steph. There. We should, final word from we should all learn from the prawn cocktail crisps incident that it didn't matter how much Boris Johnson said that the European Union were trying to ban prawn cocktail crisps, we can still eat them. <laughs> well, there we go. The prawn cocktail prime minister. You heard it here first. Um, that was all from us here in uh, Alison's podcast suite in Westminster, as we'll be calling it from now on. Apologies for referring to it as a bunker. In it's not a bunker. Episodes. It's just my office. Um, <laughs> we're going to now leave you in the capable hands of Hena Shah as she speaks to Famida Rahman about where the baby boomers have hidden all the cash. So enjoy that. We'll be listening myself. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. I'm Hena Shah, your host, and today I'm joined by Fermina Rahman from the Resolution Foundation to discuss her latest report, The Generation of Poverty. Now, discussions about poverty normally focus on children pensioners, but Fermina, you've been looking more broadly at the fluctuations people see over their lifetimes and how the experience of poverty has changed between generations. Uh, but first things first, we all care a lot about poverty and as campaigners and people in the Labour Party, it's something that's really important to us. But what is it? So I think poverty can mean a lot of different things. But in essence, we basically want to say that there are people in our society who can't really afford to meet their basic needs or aren't really keeping up with the general like normal standard of living and that 
has an impact on their day-to-day lives, so how they live. And as well, like it has an impact particularly for children on their futures and their potential and opportunities. So when we're looking at poverty, what we're really looking at is the difference in living standards that people experience, and particularly people right at the bottom of, say, the income distribution who are probably having quite a tough time of it. Okay, and what's the income distribution? So, yeah, that's a technical term from the start. Um, So when we talk about the income distribution, we normally talk in deciles or quintiles. Mm -hmm. So we're measuring the people who are the top 10% versus the next 10%. And so on and so forth. So when we talk about the bottom of the income distribution, we're talking about the bottom 10% mm-hmm. um, or the bottom half. Um, or sometimes we'll talk about quintiles. So the bottom fifth or mm-hmm. the bottom 20%. Okay, so when you talk about people over the income distribution, it seems to me that you're talking a little bit about people on a particular end, say a proportion of the lower end, uh, relative to the rest of society. Obviously, there are two different broad measures of poverty. One sort of absolute poverty, which is uh, how poor someone is full stop, and relative poverty, which looks at people's income um, and welfare in relation to other people. Now, we know that absolute poverty has been decreasing across the world, but obviously that doesn't tell the whole story. So... What is the real difference when you look at your research and which measure do you use and why? So we tend to stick to relative poverty because it. the thing about the difference between the two is basically that relative poverty, we define it as below 60% of the median incomes. So you're really comparing the people towards the lower end with what is the general living standards of the mm-hmm. day. Um, so you're, it's really a measure of how well the people at the bottom are keeping up with everyone else. Whereas absolute poverty, so people measure it in different ways. I think mm-hmm. the sort of global measure is something about like more than £1.50 a day or something. But that's a bit like a bit ridiculous within the context of the UK where living costs are just ridiculously high. Mm in compared to other like compared to other parts of the world yeah um so in the uk a general accepted measure is um 60 of the median income but the median income is fixed to a particular point in time so okay. the current accepted is in 2010 mm. um and so what you see is compared to 2000 compared to median income in 2010 mm. the poverty rate the absolute poverty rate is going down or yeah. it has until very recently, there was a slight tick up. Um, yeah, but you can sort of, you can set that point at different, you can set your benchmark at different points in time. Yeah. So some people will measure absolute poverty from the 80s and see that it went down rapidly in the 80s. Yeah. But obviously there are pros and cons with the two and we tend to prefer relative poverty just because absolute poverty, you'd expect to go down over time as general living standards and growth happens and yeah everyone's living standards go up yeah absolutely yeah it struck me what you said about the global measure of absolute poverty being something like having income around one pound fifty a day and you said it was ridiculous because obviously living costs in this country as we all know are much higher than that and actually vary across sort of regions and nations um and even across ages so 
I know that you look at two measures of poverty, one about consumption and one about income. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about why you choose to look at both. So the income measure tells us a little bit about how much people have in their pockets. So it includes how much they earn, how much benefits the state is giving them, like if they're old, what their pension pots are. But it just tells us about what people have to spend. It doesn't really tell us a lot about people's it doesn't tell us as much about people's actual living standards. So we do an income-based measure, but we also sometimes look at a consumption-based measure, Mm -hmm. which looks at how much people are spending. Mm -hmm. So, and how much people are spending on what, because that gives us a better insight into the real, like, material aspects of Mm people's living standards. So in our report that we did, we find that consumption, so the amount that people are spending has gone up, for Mm -hmm. older age groups so above the age of 50 but gone down for under 50s Mm. um particularly like 18 to 29 year olds and I think and is this the sort of like millennials are ruining x millennials are ruining y thing that you always see um millennials aren't buying cars millennials aren't buying rubber bands whatever it is yeah so I think a part of it is that millennials just spend less and we find in our research that millennials actually like as a proportion of their income they do spend less on those things that we call luxuries Mm -hmm. so eating out um going out with their friends um on flights and things like that Mm -hmm. and they spend a and that's not just because they're boring or whatever it's actually there's been a huge shift in the living standards of Mm -hmm. younger age groups so they're actually now spending more on essentials so more of their income goes on things like housing costs Mm. and food and Mm. like clothes and the basic things that you need so they don't really have as much money money left over to spend on the other things and you see the opposite happen happening for older groups so yeah so you're saying we have like boozy pensioners on holidays and boring millennials at home drinking tea um potentially but to be very rough (laughs) to to be very blunt but i I might get in trouble if i call the old people boozy (laughs) all my words all my words (laughs) um okay but i think the like serious point there is that obviously that this means that people's experience of poverty has really changed right so um you talk about how younger people where they maybe used to go out a little bit more and spend more on like luxury goods and on holidays and things like that things that we normally think of as aspects of a youth lifestyle aren't um around as much because they can't afford it whereas pensioners who well well let's say wealthy pensioners who maybe have assets that they can tap into in their older age or good pension schemes actually find that because they have housing or the essentials paid for they can spend a bit more is that a fair assessment um yeah but i think we also so we look at like groups in what groups in poverty are spending Mm -hmm. and i think one of the big things that we found is that there have been huge, huge decreases in the amount of pensioners in poverty and the living standards okay. of those pensioners in poverty have gone up. So in in the early 2000s, pensioner, average pensioner consumption, so the amount they spent was quite close to the consumption levels of in poverty groups. And that's gone up. Yeah. Um, but also the spending of 
pensioners in poverty has gone up. So those who fall below the poverty line have seen their living standards increase, okay. which is obviously a great thing. But then when you look at consumption for in poverty working age groups, mm-hmm. their consumption has hugely shifted more so than it has for the av- for like average millennials. So that thing that I said about millennials spending more on essentials and less yeah. on one, well, that's even more true for those in poverty, that ex- that generational inequality mm-hmm. is amplified in a sense for in poverty groups. Yeah. So your report talks about poverty over the life cycle. And it seems that, as you said, while we've been effective at tackling pensioner poverty, um, we've actually seen child poverty back on the rise. Uh, why is this? So a lot of things have happened. I think... So child and working age poverty is on the rise. I think a lot of... So one of the key things to note is that um, more and more people in work are in poverty. So about 56% of those in poverty today are in work. And that's a huge issue. So we've seen, of course, a huge rise in employment. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, we've had a pay squeeze and uh, people's earnings haven't really kept up. Um, Another key issue has been cuts to the welfare state. So you've got the benefits freeze the four-year benefits freeze which has taken don't quote me on this figure but I think about 500 pounds out of um the annual annual incomes of people in the bottom there and what kind of impact does that have so obviously our listeners might hear like bottom fifth and 500 pounds but actually in terms of the experience of poverty what kind of things does that affect well it it pushes up the poverty rate really it increases the amount of people in poverty because you're you're effectively taking away money that they could spend on mm. like their essential needs or more things it um yeah it pushes more people into poverty and i think that has been a key issue in recent years there was the so i think earlier this week there was a report on the two-child limit, which yeah. was obviously another benefit, cut to people's benefits, and that's set to push about 300,000 like families of children into poverty, children into poverty. Okay, yeah. So things like that, it sort of... It, and can you yeah. just explain for our audience if they don't know what the two-child limit is? Um, so the two-child limit is a limit on the amount of benefits that families receive. So when it comes to, like, in terms of the like support that you receive for having children like the state has always supported young people Mm -hmm. families of children but um in 2015 a policy was introduced whereby the additional money that you get for each children Mm -hmm. was capped so you don't get any additional money above two children okay so essentially if you have three children you get the same amount as you do if you have two children yeah three or four children and that has a significant effect because the poverty rate is about 20% higher for those with three children than it is for those with two okay, children. So it's having a measurable effect on the number yeah. of children in poverty yeah. in larger families. And I guess when we think about, and this is me using my sort of um, anecdotal rather than like proper social scientific um, brain, but I assume it tends to be people with larger families, so low-income migrant families who tend to suffer as yeah. opposed to sort of other families. So families who already struggle to get work and already struggle to fit into our system who end up being penalised by this. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. And I think there has been research done looking at the effect of that on different ethnic groups, which has showed that particularly like Bangladeshi and Pakistani families lose out 
particularly Bangladeshi and Pakistani women. Um, but yeah, it's not just the two child limit. I think a package of cuts to working age benefits mm -hmm. have really borne down on working age, particularly like families with children and sort of pushed up poverty rates so that we're basically heading into record highs of child poverty, which Great. <laughs> we don't we don't want to see. And I guess to keep the sort of, well, get to the nice bits in a second, but I do want to talk about, before we move on, uh, quickly about housing and housing costs yeah. as well. Because obviously you're talking about how um, the increasing cost of consumption has increased poverty in working age people. And obviously we talk a lot about the things that are in those in that like mythical basket of things that people buy. And obviously one of the things um, that is absolutely essential that people can't really scrimp on, although they do and live in sort of crappy accommodation because that's just the case, is housing. Um, now there's lots of scary stuff um, in your report, that's technical term, about <laughs> the impact of housing uh, costs on poverty and inequality. Um, and if you remember our extra show on Grenfell, you might remember me mentioning this. Um, but it's interesting that when you talk about younger people and older people, that housing costs have fallen by 25% relative to incomes for pensioners. Uh, but I'm guessing this isn't the case for people at other points in their life cycles. No, so housing costs have risen most for younger people and I actually can't remember the stat off the top of my head, but you've just read my report. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so housing costs have risen faster for mm. young people. And that's met, that's had a huge impact on after housing cost poverty. So there are, as I said, there are lots of different ways of measuring poverty. Yeah. And a way that you can measure it is before housing costs and you can measure it after housing costs. Mm. And what we find in our report is that when you factor in housing costs poverty goes up and it goes up for people at all ages um and for people with different levels of housing costs obviously like what that really shows is that housing costs put pressure on people's incomes but what we've seen really is that housing costs particularly have risen much faster for younger people but also much faster for those at the bottom of the income distribution which is why it's had such a huge impact mm. on poverty rates and is that you think because of the types of homes that people at the lowest end tend to go for so we um have lots of discussions about the private rented sector and sort of the collapse of the social rented sector is that a factor yeah i think definitely so you've got like one of the things that happened is that in the 1980s like before the 1980s it was, a, it was relatively easy to buy a house or like around that time and then over recent years like costs have gone up mortgage availability has gone down it's become harder to buy a house and housing and owned housing is obviously like a lot cheaper it takes up a it's a lot cheaper relatively mm. um and so what we've seen is housing costs rise for those mm. in rented accommodation yeah. who are typically those who can't afford to so buy their houses children are getting poorer families are getting poorer housing is worse and more expensive uh how can we sort this out well i think one thing to focus on is like of course we need to look at sort of housing costs and what we're going to do to like make housing more affordable, make it easier for people to buy houses, mm -hmm. but also sort of look at costs 
in the private rented sector particularly. Um, but another thing, and I think it's key and it's been quite successful in reducing poverty in the past, is actually the role of welfare and the role of the welfare state. So you did have a drop in poverty from the 90s onwards, and mm -hmm. that was in large part due to the increase increases in the cash benefits that people were receiving, yeah. particularly like child-related benefits. And then you've also got pension credit, but pension of poverty has gone down for a multitude of reasons, including housing costs and yeah. pension incomes generally going up. But I think there was like the fact that poverty fell in that period when like the welfare state had an increased focus on supporting people yeah. um, shows us that policy can make a difference. Um, and I think in recent years, obviously, we've seen like the benefits freeze mm. and cuts to the welfare state, which have had a much, much bigger impact on people in working age mm -hmm. and particularly on children. And I think sort of making sure that we are sort of supporting those people at the sharp end of living standards. Um, and of course, we've had sort of welcome decreases in pension of poverty. Um, and a big part of that is an increase in incomes. But as growth happens, and as we saw in the 1980s, pension of poverty went up. So we need, do need to retain a focus on how we help those people who are sort of vulnerable to income loss, particularly particularly as they go into retirement, mm -hmm. we do need to consider thinking about how we support those people. So I think there's a big role for the welfare state in a lot of this and in thinking about how we support those people who are vulnerable to income shocks and on the sharp end of the living standards spectrum. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I guess one more cheeky question. You don't have to answer <laughs> it. Um, obviously, we're in the middle of a conservative leadership race. Okay. Um, it's Hunt v. Johnson. Um with sort of a Boris Johnson premiership and a potential hard Brexit on the horizon, um, do you have any medium or long-term uh, punts about which direction poverty will be headed in? That's for us to see, obviously. If we're, I mean, you've got, like, there have been promises to end austerity and the benefits freeze is ending, but... As we say, a lot of the policies that have been sort of put out there are still to be implemented. So I mentioned the report a few days ago that mm -hmm. said that um, up to 3,000 will eventually be affected by the two-child limit. Um, no one's suggested that that's going to go away anytime soon. So I think like if we continue on the trajectory that we're on, um, child poverty will continue to go up. So I think there is an onus if we are to look at this issue and we are to take it seriously for whoever does end up in power to take a long, hard look at what what happens really and what what the welfare state looks like in the f in future years. Thank you. That was a very diplomatic answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks, Amida. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you aren't subscribed to Resolution Foundation mailing list, I assume I should ask you to subscribe, um, mainly because they have a great Friday uh, nerd fest, which is called Top of the Charts, that I love. And obviously, if you're not subscribed to this podcast, what are you doing? Subscribe, rate and review. Send it to your friends who are nerdy and care about poverty. See you all next time. Bye-bye. been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was one in the west by blue dot sessions 
licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. Mm-hmm.